Taras is a, um, is a, is a missionary that we as a church uh, have supported and support and uh, is currently living with his family in, um, in Poland, but is from Belarus originally. And we're going to hear a bit about um, his travels and why he decided to move his family to Poland a little bit later on. Um, but first, we're going to ask him about his running. So welcome, uh, Taras. Good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. Good to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come over. Yeah, no problem. Do you, do you just want to begin by maybe introducing yourself a bit? So um, tell us about your family, anything that you're doing work-wise at the moment. I know you're still finding your feet in Poland, but just an introduction into you and your, your family life. Yeah, uh, so I'm originally from Belarus, but, but it's very funny to think uh, where I'm coming from ethnically. My father was born in Russia, but he's Ukrainian. My mom was born in Ukraine, but she's Russian. My brother was born in Kazakhstan, and I was born in Belarus, and I have no yeah. clue who I am. <laughs> and my grand-grandfather was a Polish man, so like I'm basically the person from the region. Uh, but I identify myself with Belarus and Belarusian soil, so I consider myself Belarusian. I was a pastor of the church uh, back in Belarus that I planted in 2017 with a group of people, but I was forced to flee with the whole family in 2021 last year because of the persecution from Belarusian regime, KGB in particular. Right now, uh, I'm a pastor in uh, another church uh, here in Poland, uh, in Warsaw, uh, the one we planted just a couple of months ago with a few friends of mine. And run like crazy. That's one of the greatest joy of my life. I mm. run a lot on a daily basis. Father of three and husband of one. It's very important not to confuse. Because if I can don't get this confused. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, husband of three and father of one. That would be much yeah. more confusing. I mean, your English is pretty good, so we couldn't excuse that mistake as an accident i'm afraid but yeah <laughs> but in a uh, nutshell yeah that's yeah okay great uh well thanks for joining us and we'll hear a bit about uh your uh your trip to uh from belarus to poland a bit later but let's start with with your with your running um do you just want to um just just right at the right at the start for any runners who are in the room tonight list off your your pbs you know 5k 10k marathon pb just to give people an idea of where you're at in terms of your running okay so 800 meters to start okay 400 meters even though i wasn't a sprint i was long distance running 400 meters 50 seconds 800 153 1500 350 5k 1430 10k 29 something <laughs> uh, half marathon i started running long distances when i quit kind of more or less professional running okay so i did half marathon and i think this year i set my pb actually uh it was one hour 10 minutes but i feel i have guts to run much faster so that's what i'm going for and marathon this uh uh this uh, spring i ran in 227 227 brilliant and and i mean i mean it's fantastic and and for those who who, who aren't um who aren't as into running could you just for your marathon time could you just give a breakdown of you know what is that in terms of minute mile or minute a kilometer what, uh, minute, what... uh, so that would be the average pace was 328 per kilometer so that would be like around slightly faster than 17 minutes per 5k and around 34 40 per each 10 k's yeah, I guess I'm not thinking in miles. I'm thinking in kilometers. No, no, no. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. And and it's just worth saying for people who uh, who 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 aren't who aren't runners or don't run that often. If you just go out and try to run just one kilometer in three minutes twenty eight, um, you'll get an idea of what pace that is to sustain over a marathon distance. So um, it's fantastic. So you clearly know what you're talking about when it comes to running. As you said, you're passionate about it. Um, you are very kind of accomplished in the in the running world. You, you you talked about running professionally. Do you just want to tell us um, a bit about how you um, got into professional running, or or when you first realised um, that that you wanted to kind of compete professionally as as a runner? How did that kind of passion begin? Well, I I, I think my passion for running uh, has like a lot of layers, like you know, in the, the cabbage. I'm not sure this is a very <laughs> right <laughs> illustration, but it's like yeah, we, we get it. I get from, yeah. from my Russian speaking mind. In some ways, I uh, my passion was uh, grown out of hopelessness. 
in some way it was grown out of need. So the place I'll, I'll set the need, the place I grew up in Minsk, Belarus, like I always love to joke and mess around. Like it was very dangerous place and uh, there are a lot of criminal stuff happening in the place I grew up. So if you wanted to survive, you needed to run fast. And so right, I yeah. wanted to leave. And so I had to run fast pretty much everywhere you go because you're constantly in danger. <laughs> So that was like a survival skill, like, you know, you constantly can get in trouble. So like, you better run out, run away from there. But in other way, it was grown out of hopelessness. Uh, so I was growing in 90s. It was the time in Belarus uh, straight after Soviet Union fell apart. And the part of the town I grew up in uh, was consisted from two main groups of people. The first were military people. And second, uh, there were people who were released from prison. The idea the Soviet Union had was that these two groups of people be mixed together and that military people, uh, they will influence people that just got released from prison and they will affect them for good. But in reality, the opposite happened. Both groups of people were very depressed. So those who came from Afghanistan war, for example, they realized that there was absolutely meaningless war and so they were like drinking heavily. And those who were released from prison, they had no hope and no future, no way how they can move back into the society. And so both groups of people became severely uh, alcohol addicts and drug addicts. And growing up in that place was a quite depressing experience because it's just you're growing in the place of hopelessness. Like people have no hope. And uh, people try to sublimate this dissatisfaction with life in form of escapism in alcohol addiction and drug addiction. Mm. And my, my family was one of these people I'm talking yeah. about. Like my, my dad, even though he was a super successful man in many ways, he ended up being an alcohol addict. So did my mom. And so just seeing that kind of environment was so depressing and... Uh, like running was one of the form how I was sublimating my inner desires for, for, for something greater, for something yeah. bigger in life. Yeah. Um, so that That's was really interesting. Thing. So there's a sense in which you, you did it for the practical reason of having to escape uh, <laughs> violent people in the community you lived in, but also a sense of, you know, trying to find, a, you know, meaning in life really, and, and a bit a more wholesome way of escaping reality. So, one way of escaping would be alcohol, drug addiction, violence, gang, crime. Perhaps another way of escaping for you was to sort of channel it into something a bit more wholesome, healthy and active. And that, so that, yeah. that's a really interesting thing. And, and so how did you move from that kind of um, initial way of using running? You know, when did you realize, oh, I'm actually like quite good at this. Maybe, maybe I should maybe yeah. I should go and compete. Maybe because you ended up in the Belarusian national team, didn't you? So yeah. just talk us, talk us through that journey. Yeah. Um, so there was like, I don't know whether you have the same in the UK, but in Belarus, like uh, at the PEA, you have to pass some tests. So one of the tests was you have to run like uh, in the FIFA sixth grade, you have to run 1500. And I ran pretty decently again. And I ran decently because like I had to run everywhere because this yeah. is a survival skill. So I went to participate in a local competition and I won it. And then like a few weeks later, I went to the Minsk championship and I came second. And after a few weeks, uh, they said, well, now you can represent Minsk in national championship. Great. And I went there to the national championship. Uh, there was like a junior national championship. The miracle didn't happen. I was one of the last ones, to be yeah. honest, because like the, the gap of the uh, between me and other guys was like two years and I was like super skinny like very short guy and there were like massive guys coming in front of me and so they were smashing me through the whole distance but that was the first championship and like you know they put me in the hotel they gave me some uh, pocket money and that was like so exciting for me because finally I realized I, I can achieve something in life and again yeah. that was related with escaping from this hopeless community like I realized I can see the world. I can I can try to achieve something. So in some ways, I was trying to find my identity just mm. by running and achieving, mm. beating other mm. people. Mm. And gradually, I started yeah because I won a few of these races, 
uh, the local coach he said like hey you, you should start training and mm-hmm. so i started coming to uh regular trainings uh, of a, a local club mm-hmm. and from that i started slowly progressing there wasn't like massive immediate progress i think it took me like another five years before i uh won my first national championship mm-hmm. um right but- and so did, did that take you around the place in, in terms of did you did you travel like with an athletics track and field team or anything like that did you go overseas to compete or I mean yes yeah yeah so uh I think it, 2005 was the first time when I came third I think in a national championship in cross country and the first four they were uh, representing the country in European championship and we went to Netherlands that was the first time when I nice. uh, uh, went outside of Belarus and it was an amazing experience because like Netherlands and Belarus, it's like you're talking about two different worlds, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like Thomas More world of Utopia and there's like a world of, uh, I don't know, Nazi during Second World War. That would right, be, yeah, yeah. well, maybe I'm slightly yeah. exaggerating, but going there was <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. I remember there was like a, do you call it a buffet? Yeah. When you have yeah, like, yeah, anything yeah. you want to. Yeah. Because that was my first experience with this kind of stuff. And there was like a buffet of like 50 meters in two different holes. <laughs> and I was like, my Belarus and Hungary eyes were like, I yeah. need to eat everything over here. <laughs> and so I put like the whole mountain of my plate and I mixed the products that cannot be mixed together. No. <laughs> yeah. And the night before the race, brother, I was, I was a mess. I was sorry for saying that, but like yeah. from every hole in my body, something was coming out. <laughs> Okay, I thank was, you, brother. Yeah. I was puking. I was, that was the night before the race. Yeah, just night before the race. Yeah, so from okay, right. So that was the first European Championship. That's my first experience. And this is like a you have to represent the team. So like each place combined, that's your team place, basically. Okay, yeah. And I was in pretty decent shape. And so I went to the start line and I feel I'm absolutely empty. There's nothing in me. Like I have no. nothing to run, like no, no. food. <laughs> I didn't sleep for the whole There's night. There's 50 meters sleep. worth of buffets come out of you. Yes. Yeah. And the guy gives the start. He, uh, how do you call it? Like he, yeah. Uh, and we had like the leader of the team who was very decent. And somehow like I didn't run from the gate really well. And I pushed him. And he like landed in the in the mud like a sausage, absolutely flat. So he had to chase the whole oh, gang after that. Yeah. And I remember, so I'm running, I'm coming to the finish line, and I know I'm I'm at the very uh, end of the of everyone. And I look back, and I saw the limping guy who's like barely basically moving. <laughs> he's like not even running; he's crawling. So that first championship, I came. So this is Belarus on the national stage, yeah, representing the country of Belarus. So I came 97 out of 102, I guess, or something. Right, okay. I was very, like, the five people behind me were, like, sick lepers, like, who couldn't couldn't rot at all. Right, right. Uh, Wow, okay. I remember Belarusian media, not media, but local newspapers, like, they wrote how other guys... Uh, what was their place from Belarusian team? There was one guy who was sixth, another seventeenth, and then my ninety-seven sunk the ship of our team. <laughs> totally, completely. We were like way at the bottom. I still remember these lines in a local newspaper, and only Taras Tilkovsky wasn't ready for the test of a cross <laughs> championship. And I was like, my coach was reading it, and my team, and I was like. I was so ashamed of that. Next year, that was a different story. I okay. Lesson and I learned your lesson. Okay, great. Oh, well, thanks for telling us that. I mean, um, and just, I mean, jumping on a bit now. So you, you've had a professional life as a runner. Um, and just tell us a bit about, so, you, you know, when you were over here in the UK, which you were for some time, you you took part in park runs locally here in Kingston, didn't you? You did the Bushy Park one and did pretty well in that didn't you and then went back to Minsk and you started park run didn't you over in uh, in Minsk is that right and yeah absolutely yeah yeah uh, yeah I, I was doing park run because like yeah I, I just the, the bush park, I was living in 
where Kingston Church is, and I was living mm -hmm. in Chessington. And Bushwick Park is the hometown of all park runs in the world. So you have like 1,200 runners coming there like every Saturday. It was such an exciting experience. Mm -hmm. So I started going there, and the first race I came second. And I, by that time, I quit professional running, but this sense of competitiveness is still in, in me. So yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. I need to smash all of these guys. Yeah. So I started training <laughs> back again in London. I would like cycle to my studies in, in London, near London Bridge and back. And after that would go for a run from yeah. time to time. Yeah. Eventually I won most of the Bushy Park runs I participated in. Great. You can check the stats if you're interested for 2014 and 2015. You will see right. my name. And I'm quite proud of it. Not number 97. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, right. uh, yeah. But I had a friend of mine came from Belarus. He saw the park run and it was such an exciting idea. And uh, he went back to Belarus, got registered the whole brand. And we started doing pretty much the same thing, meeting locally and running 5K. Uh, and people started getting, getting like an alternative to their Saturdays instead of spending time before yeah, the TV yeah. and alcohol. They're like, you can do some activity with your family and run 5K, improve yeah. your health and get some yeah. fun in the community. So that was great, great fun. Yeah, yeah, and most recently we'll move off running after this. But most recently, you're you you know you 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 ran the marathon in Poland, didn't you? Recently, or, or, yeah. or sort of moved into marathon running. Just tell us about that. Yeah, not, not only marathon, a couple other races. Uh, yeah. I did marathon in Luch, uh, and I, I I partially combined it with the performance in some way. I asked my I told my kids about uh, parents in Ukraine who lost their children. Yeah. because of the war because of the bombing and because of terrorist attacks that russia is doing on ukraine and my parents when my kids were so moved they some of the status started even crying mm. and i said what we can do for them uh, and we said like well we can at least raise awareness mm. about these parents uh, and about the pain they're going through mm. and we can somehow help them so i said to my kids well, why don't we draw little children on my legs as I'm going to go for a run, like in memory of those kids who uh, died in Ukrainian war in commemoration uh, of their lives and in support of their parents, like saying, you're not forgotten, people are praying mm -hmm. for you. And I know it's not going to release any pain from your life whatsoever, but at least you and prayers and hearts of many people. Mm -hmm. And I said with you, like, if there's a chance I will win any money from this race, I'll give money to parents who lost their kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was because I wasn't really super ready for the marathon, but I was really surprised that, uh, I, yeah, I set my new personal best. Came fourth uh, overall. There was one Kenyan run, a Kenyan runner, and there were two Polish professional runners before me. So I came fourth, Great. and I got like around seven hundred dollars, like six hundred pounds for yeah. the fourth place, and that's the money we gave to, uh, to 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 one of the families who lost mm. their children. But right. the funny thing was the week later, there was a national constitution. Uh, uh, they had like a race dedicated to constitution that was established like in 18th century. The funny thing that Belarusian was one of the guy who was writing the constitution. And I won the race. There was 5K. There was like 6,000 6, runners. I won the 5K. Uh, and like, you know, at the end of the race, like all interviewers, they were excited thinking like, oh, Polish runner will tell us something. And here's like Belarusian. And they like, because there's so much conflict right now with yeah. Belarus and Belarusian regime and Lukashenko, they, the first question, what do you think about Lukashenko and Putin? Because they were afraid, like if there's in any way I support them, there will be a disaster. Like yeah, the, yeah. the constitution race and the guy who's pro dictator regime wins the race. But I release the pressure from them saying yeah. I'm okay. here don't worry I hate these bloody dictators yeah okay interesting well let's let's move to that now so so as as you you know as you said and as we picked up your uh you you came with your family from Belarus to um Poland from a church that you established from a country that you still love in, in many ways and you've relocated to Poland it's a different language um, your kids have been going to schools, uh, learning a different language. That's been difficult for them. Um, so just talk us through, because, I mean, lots of people will know, um, well, all of us will know about um, Russia and Putin's aggression in uh, Ukraine at the moment. But people might be less familiar with 
with kind of the story of Belarus and what's happened there politically over the last few years. So could you just um, just colour that in a bit for us and talk us through um, your decision to eventually move from that country that you love to, you know, to um, to uh, to Poland and the kind of steps you took as a family in, in doing that? Yeah. Um, two, two years ago, we had an election, uh, president election. And for those who don't know, we've had the same president now for 29 years. He used to be called the last dictator of Europe. Well, I think now he shares this glorious title with Vladimir Putin. But before war, Lukashenko used to be called the, the last dictator of, uh, of Europe. Majority of election we had in previous years were totally hijacked and it was a total fraud. Uh, but in 2020, uh, people were so fed up with Lukashenko and Belarusian regime. Uh, we were one of the only countries in the world that denied coronavirus. So people were dying. Our hospitals were packed. Uh, the amount of funeral was crazy. And yet Lukashenko and his regime were saying, like, uh, there's no coronavirus in Belarus. We had like a very few people who got sick. And that, yeah, people were like so fed up. And so there was a vibe of possible change in the atmosphere. So we had few alternative guys who started running for presidency in 2020. Uh, unfortunately, all of them were arrested before the election date. Uh, Lukashenko and his bloody regime, they made a fraud case saying they broke some laws and did something against the country and constitution, so they deserve to be punished and imprisoned. Uh, but yet they gave the opportunity, Lukashenko's regime gave the opportunity for one lady whose husband was in prison and who ran for presidency to uh, uh, to promote her, to, to put her uh, herself instead of her husband to run for the presidency. And Belarusian people united around her. Mm. They said, we're going we're gonna to vote for her because she basically was sublimating people's desire for change and for something new in our country. And I would say maybe 70 or maybe 80% even of Belarusian voted for her. Mm. But Belarusian regime totally hijacked uh, the elections and Lukashenko said 85% voted for him. Everyone knew that it's a fraud. Lukashenko knew it, Belarusian knew it, the rest of the world knew it. And people went on the streets to protest, saying like, we were fed up with it. Lukashenko's regime responded with crazy violence. They arrested 40,000 people in the first uh, few weeks of protests, and people were going on protests nonstop. Mm. Uh, to the violence, people were responding with more and more protests. And as a Christian ministry, minister, I, I, I couldn't flee from that pain and from the conflict that we have in our society. Even though there are a lot of Belarusian ministers and Christian uh, uh, pastors and preachers and priests, they're saying, we have nothing to do with this world. We have nothing to do with injustice and pain of this world. We're all about heaven. We're all about eternal life. Uh, we have nothing to do with that. And I think... I'm not going to go into detail, details, but I think it's very wrong understanding of Christian faith. And so mm. as a Christian minister, I was speaking a lot against the Belarusian regime and its atrocities. I was reminding to Belarusian authorities that they are not final authority. Yeah. There's authority above them and they need to submit to this final authority. And God's authority tell them what is their purpose, how they should reign, how they should use their power over people in society. Hmm. how they need to create the structure where life is flourish and human uh, creativity is yeah flourishing and how we should treat one another with dignity that is God-given dignity. Hmm. And so, um, of course, Belarusian regime does not forgive that kind of stuff. Uh, I was given interviews uh, to different newspapers and different media given Christian perspective on the, the whole conflict uh, in Belarusian society. I was arrested at the end of, uh, uh, during the protest, uh, imprisoned for a very short amount of time, then was released, uh, had a trial, they made me guilty. I remember the court, I went, even though I know some people hate official minister clergy robes, 
but I wore wore the rope, uh, like yeah. clergy rope, the dog collar, or how do you call it? Yeah. And so it was a funny moment, like you know, the judge wears the uh, rope, like I'm I'm an authority here, and I came in rope, like saying I'm also representing authority over here. Right. And she was trying to say you broke these laws and laws and so on and so forth. And I was pointing to her that. No, you are breaking God's laws and the way you're treating humanity and the way you're treating mm. Belarusians, mm. how you lie, how you beat people on the streets. Uh, you're breaking God's laws mm. and you're giving accounts. So there was a very interesting moment for me in life, an interesting experience. Mm. Uh, yeah, they made me guilty, gave me a fine. Yeah, I was released. But I, I kept saying a lot of stuff against regime, uh, continuing to uh, support those who were protesting uh, trying to give like a healthy Christian perspective on everything that is happening. And then I started being followed by KGB. Um, we started being spy after. Uh, most of my accounts in social media were hacked. Uh, we had our car uh, was followed by, we have no clue what these agents, uh, who, who were these agents. But obviously I started like being um, spy after. And to be honest, I, I wish I could say that I was such a strong man and I could like resist and respond to that with more strength and more stamina and more courage. But uh, I, I felt my like insanity started breaking at this point. Like I, even sorry for such details. I remember myself going to the toilet and not being able to relax just to do number one in the toilet because you was so yeah. dense and so stressed in your mind. Like you, you can't relax for a second to just... Do, do your normal physiological activity. Mm. Uh, I think mainly what's happening because I was just focusing way so much on the, the regime and what they're doing. And Belarusian regime is is in, entirely godless. It has no restrictions and no limits, uh, no morals whatsoever. They're so thirsty for their power that they're willing to do anything to humanity and any anyone who is standing in their way to maintain this power. Uh, so yeah, I was followed. Then after a while, I was uh, I got a phone call from officials uh, saying that I'm a, a witness of a crime I have no clue about. They asked me to come. Right. To be honest, at that point, I wanted to flee because already yeah. many things happened. Like many friends of mine were arrested and yeah. when the interrogator from KGB would come, they would question them for 40 minutes mainly about me, my activity, mm. my investment uh, in in my partnership with the Western world. Again, like even studying in London for two years, like by Belarusian regime, they might see that, well, I might be recruited by any special forces yeah, to serve yeah. their needs and like, yeah. you know, hijack Belarusian regime or what, whatever, I don't know. So many friends of mine being interrogated by agents, like, like who is he, how he's connected with the Western world. And my kind of understanding that this circle around me is getting smaller and smaller. And yeah, there's just yeah. a small amount of time when I'll be arrested and imprisoned. I went to this another interrogated process, uh, in, in, uh, into this another interview with officials. They made me an interview. Uh, they made me a witness of a crime I have no clue about. Uh, and they asked me to give me my phone at the end of the interview. That's what they do. Like, you know, they, they hijack all of your media and all yeah. of your... Uh, 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 all of your emails I didn't bring my phone with me uh, I knew that's what they're going to ask me for and they said like you can please come on Monday and I during this the, the interview was on Friday and on Sunday we left with my whole family yeah. and we didn't leave for good I was thinking maybe we'll have just for a very short amount of time but within two months a few friends of mine were arrested and again uh, when they were interrogated by the agent from KGB they were asking about me and yeah. for me, that was one of the signs that if I go back, yeah, I will yeah. end up in prison. And for some people, I know there are some people who are courageous enough saying, like, you need not only to raise the voice against injustice, but you need to willing to be willing to pay the price to suffer for the truth. Mm. And I realized I was willing to raise my voice for the truth and against injustice, but I realized I wasn't willing to pay the full price mm -hmm. like the, to face mm. Belarusian regime entirely mm. so um when you say you weren't willing to, to pay the full price but from another perspective 
just hearing about the experiences you went through, you know, the mental anguish um, that you experienced, the time you spent in prison, the court trials that you had to go through, and not just you, members of the church community who were arrested. You know, I think I think most of us would say that is a pretty high price you've already paid um, for speaking out against the, uh, the regime and for doing so from a Christian perspective. Um, and so, th- I mean, thanks for telling us that, that story so clearly. Uh, and then so you decided to stay in, in Poland. You, you're making a new life in Poland. You, you were saying at the beginning you're, you're um, beginning to pastor a new church there, which is in its infancy still. Um, but it would be great to hear a bit about what life is like for you, for you now on the on the ground in Poland. So we know that lots of Ukrainian refugees fleeing fleeing the war have come over the borders and into Poland. And I know that that's presented um, an opportunity for for you, hasn't it? As as both one of those refugees in, in one sense, but also now in a position to serve others who are fleeing. Do you, do you just want to just outline what you've been doing since you left Belarus? You know. Yeah, um, absolutely. For a while, we were stuck in the middle of nowhere because, like, you know, back in Belarus, we had the whole life sorted. We had the place to leave. We uh, we had a church to pass. Uh, uh, like, there was my culture. There was my my people in the sense of, like, I, I, I knew everything. There was the whole life. And then we ended up, like, in a foreign land with a foreign culture, with a foreign language. And for a while, we were just stuck uh, between nowhere uh, and we were expecting and hoping that things might change very quickly and we will have a chance to go back to Belarus. So for a while, I would say we were doing uh, nothing. Uh, that's If you allow me, brother, just to go go back for one second before I'll yeah, get yeah. back to the answer yeah, the yeah. question. I was reading Viktor Frankl, uh, if some of you might heard the name, this is a psychiatrist who went through many of the concentration camps during the Second World War, through the Nazi concentration camps. And he was providing uh, psychiatrists, psychological help uh, for uh, imprisoned people. And it's interesting, he said in his, uh, in a few of his books, he was saying the first people who were dying in the concentration camps were those who completely lost the hope that things will ever change. They was like, it's all meaningless. There's no hope. There's no future. That's it. This is the end. These were the first people who were dying the second group of people who were giving up and dying quickly there were those who were expecting changes that will come quickly. So they were saying, just another two weeks and things will go well. Mm. And then two weeks later, things went even worse. And so they were losing its all hope and they were the second group of people who were dying. And the only group of people who uh, was able to survive and maintain life were those who were not expecting anything to change quickly. And yet they were maintaining the hope that one day things will go for good, that there will be some good happening. And that was one of his psychological trick, if you can put it in these words, how he used. He was trying to elevate people from the moment of the current pain to the situation where this pain will be no more and there will be place will be space of life where they will be flourished and it was yeah it was a very complicated thing but that's i noticed the same happening right now those people who are losing their sanity and losing their connection with other people and even with themselves those who are like there's no hope so many mm-hmm. so stupid, that's it and it's hard to like for these people like it's they're going this pain is killing them on a daily basis those who are expecting quick changes i see them around myself they're like yeah, losing motivation very quickly and falling back in depression as well. And I think we were, in some ways, we were in a second group of people. We were expecting changes would come very quickly to Belarus. Like regime will fall and we'll return back to the country, go back to their house, hug our relatives. It's not happening. It's 15 months now. So I realized this desire for quick change is just, a, it's a poison for soul, poison for life. And when the war started, I realized I can't do everything. I can't hug the world, but I can't do nothing. I have to do something. I have no clue what's going to be the future, a nuclear war, will this war ever end? But I can't respond to this war with just numbness, like, like oh, just getting up. And I like, 
I have to do something. So I organized a group of Belarusian people saying we should try to provide humanitarian relief to as many Ukrainians as possible. We can't provide to everyone, no. but we need to provide it to as many as possible. And like immediately we had like 20 people who volunteered to help. And we were basically created, like we had a few IT guys and they created fantastic systems. So people would fill the form and it would drop into the system. Like, this is my need. This is where I am. And in the system, we would have people who were willing to fill the need in any way. Like we can provide yeah, shelter, yeah. we can provide housing, we can provide uh, transportation from the border, we can give finances. And so in the hub, in the center, we were basically working, trying to connect those in need with those who can yeah. help. And I think in the first 10 days, we helped, like, I don't know, at least 300 Ukrainian families at, at, at its minimum. Mm. So we try to take the first shock of the war as much mm. as they can. Mm. Later on, it would have been good. It would have been good to have you in our government. I think actually, you know, by the by the sounds <laughs> of that list of needs, list of how we can provide, put it together. Yeah, you would have been quite useful over here, I think, brother. That might be a bit cynical of me, but <laughs> probably true. Well, um, little in words, I'm so organized and structured. You know, brother, in reality, <laughs> administration yeah. and myself, not yeah. working well together. Yeah. Um, well, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and later on, we started. Now, what I realized, I go on, every Tuesday. I go to refugee center, and now I see these people who come. They, they come to get humanitarian aid. And there's one thing I see so clearly, and I really want to emphasize it. I remember the words of Jesus Christ that, uh, what is that in English? Not by bread alone, human beings are alive. Can you rather help me to phrase it in English? Yeah, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Exactly, exactly. Sorry, I don't remember that in English. But I, I come there and I see, brother, that, that we are much more than our physical and material needs. So we give them bread, we give them food to eat, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're empty. And I open up the scripture with these people and I try to bring the comfort from the word of God to not nourish only their bodies with this food, but nourish their eternal souls their mind with a greater perspective than the pain they're experiencing in the mm. moment and it was so amazing to see that 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 they when they're really hearing the words of god when they're going away from that they, they're nourished they're getting mm. a sense of hope they're having perspective in their life and mm. so we tried right now to provide some holistic help for people not, not only to relieve immediate humanitarian need they have we do that but we also try to care for their eternal souls. So mm. now the focus changed. Now we're not caring only for like their immediate needs, but we try mm. to serve mm. with, uh, uh, with those things we can serve the best with the word mm. of God. That's mm. what we do at the moment. Thank you very much. That sounds that sounds brilliant. Um, and that's a good place to kind of transition to the to the kind of the next and in some ways last last bit of the the interview. Um, so you you you've talked throughout this interview and specifically in the last few minutes about how your convictions as a as a Christian um, have shaped how you've responded to this refugee crisis in Poland, shaped how you've spoken out against the regime in Belarus. It was why you came to England to study for Christian ministry. You've been involved in church planting, so that's been a huge part of your your life. And um, just to kind of join the dots a bit with the running stuff, um, a few years ago. Uh, you undertook a, a, a massive endurance challenge, um, which was to run 500 kilometers in five days in Belarus. So that's that's two and a half marathons a day for five days straight, um, which is just a phenomenal feat. And uh, it was a fantastic thing because you had people filming it. Uh, there was a live stream so that people could tune in and ask you questions as you were yeah. running along and suffering. Um, I'm sure you've got uh, loads of memories uh, about that. Do you just do you just want to tell us? I mean, uh, firstly, a little bit about about that challenge, but secondly, why you why you chose 500 kilometers in five days? Why you did that? Because it links in with your Christian um, convictions, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, in 2017, we were celebrating 500 years, not only of Reformation, when Luther knocked his 95 Theses, which happened yesterday, 505 years ago. Yep. Um, no, we're talking about, <laughs> not yesterday, but yeah, we're filming on the 1st of November, so yes. it's 31st of October yesterday, yeah. Yes, uh, uh, and majority of churches, they were organizing some cultural events uh, for these kind of 
for, for the Reformation. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that. Uh, that in 1517, uh, there was a Belarusian guy who translated Bible into Belarusian language. Not the whole Bible, but majority of the Bible books into Belarusian language. We were the fourth country in the world, uh, the, four, the fourth ethnic group that had a Bible in their national language. I'm not even sure, but Tyndale translated Bible to English like 15 years only after that. So we had it before that. But amazing thing about Bible is that it, it's not the book only just about doctrines and ideas. It's it's a book of life. That, mm -hmm. That's how I see Bible. It, it's a book full of life. It tells us about life. It invites us to experience life. And this is how I see this book. And I personally experienced this book reviving my soul. If you remember in the beginning, I was telling a lot about hopelessness that I yeah. experienced in my community because people had no hope in life. And what Bible uh, revealed me is the, the, there's meaning to life. There is sense in everything. There is a greater things that I can see and experience on a daily basis. And churches were organizing cultural events and it wasn't attracted mu attracting much attention from society because mm -hmm. like they would say, come to hear lecture on Bible and some music <laughs> and people would be like, oh, fantastic, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how can I combine my skills yeah. with my passion for yeah. Bible? Yeah. And I try to combine my running with Bible. So I decided to run 500 kilometers in commemoration of 500 years of Belarusian Bible and Reformation. And by doing that, like something extreme, I was trying to say look, these ideas that were relevant 500 years ago, they're so relevant now because truth matters, meaning matters, life matters. Mm. And th these things, they don't have expiration date. It's not like you can say like they were no. valid back then. They're yeah. so important nowadays. And Bible transformed Belarusian society 500 years yeah. ago, literally 16th century called Golden Age of Belarus. And only historians talk about that because many people like forget about history. But it was golden age because biblical worldview and the ideas shaped society in all levels, mm. on political levels, on cultural levels, on every level. And when people started undigging, exploring the depth and beauty of biblical worldview and started building society on that foundation, we experienced revival. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, when Belarus was, well, pretty in a horrible state, even now, yeah, the amount of suicide were one of the leading countries in the world. The amount of kids that are orphanages were one of the leading countries in the yeah. world. Yeah, The amount of uh, alcohol and drug addicts were one of the leading countries yeah. in the world. The amount yeah. of uh, divorces, eight out of ten. And this is not talking about only about even political system and economic system, which yeah, is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to say to people, no, it's just because we're building society in our wisdom and look what kind of society we have. We have, I'm sorry for this word, but I would say crap. Hmm. We have crap. We have like pain, tears, death. Hmm. We have nothing beautiful. Hmm. And look, back then, we, we, we built society on, on basing on this book. We had something beautiful. Mm. And this is, if we start exploring, digging it deep again, and try to bring it back to our communities, we mm. can experience revival again, because this world this word is, doesn't have expiration date. It's mm. eternal word of living God. So mm. I was really trying to, through this uh, sport event, communicate with our society, with Belarusian mm. country. Uh, that was one of the big desires I had because I, I didn't have any passion for just ideas or for my running. Mm -hmm. There was more, I hope it was love for my community and for, for my mm -hmm. people. That was what was driven me mm -hmm. to run it. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Well, it was a joy for us to be able to kind of share in that experience with you. I mean, obviously we went through none of the suffering that you <laughs> endured, but it was good to be able to see it on that live stream and, uh, to see that enthusiasm for the Bible combined with your natural abilities um, uh, just, just working so well to raise attention uh, about the Bible. Um, just, just, just as we kind of come to the end, uh, last, last couple of questions, um, your enthusiasm for the Bible and the life message that the Bible offers um, is, is really plain. Do you just want to tell us, because you didn't, you said at the beginning, you didn't grow up necessarily in a home or in a context where 
um, uh, the message of Jesus was very prominent in your in your life. In fact, you know, it sounded like there was crime and alcohol addiction in the home. Just tell us then about your own personal journey, you know, in this theme of running, of, of running away from God, perhaps, and being being found by God and personally yourself becoming uh, becoming a Christian. Hmm. I, I think it was, again, like in the beginning with my passion for running many layers and quite a few layers with how I became a Christian. I will not go into details with everything, but share a few. It's interesting. My, my parents baptized me in Russian Orthodox Church at the age of six. That's more a superstitious thing, rather like a understanding yeah. of the baptism. But mm. it was such a dramatic experience for me. So next day I went to kindergarten and I started telling everyone about God. And I got a nickname, uh, Preacher. Uh, like who knew that kids prophetically would give me something yeah. that I would commit my life to later on yeah. in life. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in house of cultural Christians, I would say. Parents would go to church twice a year to do some rituals, to put some candles. But there is nothing of Christian faith, like in biblical understanding of it in my house or in the community whatsoever. It's more about tradition uh, and superstitions rather than Christian faith. Uh, what played a huge role in me started thinking deeper about issues of life and faith was probably was my father. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, he was a very successful man. Uh, back in Soviet Union time, he was a colonel uh, in Soviet army. He participated in Afghanistan war. So he had mm. basically just one step before general. Soviet Union fell apart and he went into politics and he was... Uh, well, he was a super sharp man. He was a very successful politician. He was chief executive for human rights in Belarusian parliament, quite high ranking. After a while, he left from the parliament and started doing uh, business and was very successful in business. He was like, when I remember in the beginning of 90s, when everyone was very poor, our family was flourishing. Like we had two cars, our fridges were packed with food when other people were having like nothing. And after a while, he went into law stuff. He got his third degree, high uh, degree, uh, third master's in law and became a lawyer. And again, because of the connection and because of his sharpness, he hasn't lost any case for quite a few years. And back then he was, uh, I'm not entirely sure whether it's right or not, but I think he was one of the members of National Soviet Union team in high jump, uh, uh, high jump in track. Okay. Field. So he was like, basically what I'm trying to say, like whatever he touched, like, can turn it into gold. He was a successful man, yeah. sharp man, good marriage, decent kids. And and he ended up in severe alcohol addiction, like drinking literally, I mean, sometimes two weeks in a row. And I'm seeing my father, father drunk. And for me, it was well, painful because like in your parents, you try to find well, both comfort and answers for deep issues of life. I get none. And I remember when my father was sober, and in pain, I was asking him, like, Dad, you had everything in life that most people desire for. Why are you drinking nonstop? Mm. And he said a very interesting thing that stuck with me for, for the rest of my life. Uh, mm. it's, it's in my bones. It's not in, even in my mind. He said, nothing brought me satisfaction. Alcohol became a good way of escapism from mm. the pain of reality. And it stuck with me so deeply that I said to myself that I'm not going to repeat uh, the life of my father. And I started searching for meaning. Like, is there a meaning? Is there more to life than just success, politics, sport, and achievement? And for a while, sport was the heart of my identity. I thought, yeah. well, once I win these races, I will become satisfied. I will be full, full of life. And I remember I won most of the races I, I kind of dreamed of winning, like national championship, represent a national team. But this sense of, emptiness haunted me and I remember I started going to Russian Orthodox Church and praying with a very simple prayer God if you're there I really want to know you uh, for who you are not who I'm trying to imagine to myself mm. that was important for me because I would go to Russian Orthodox Church and it's not war-driven communities it's image-driven communities that are open for your own interpretation. You go, you see this mystical building with a lot of icons and candles and all this mystical experience. 
And you can interpret this experience in any way you want. So I would go yeah. see the icon and I would ask some questions that are burning within me. Like, can you have sex with girl before marriage? And I would look at the saying and he's smiling. And I would think to myself, well, probably he's saying yes. That's <laughs> how I was building my... He looks positive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... So I, and I started praying like, God, I really want to know you, who you for who you are, not who I'm just, I realized that God becomes basically the projection of my desires. I'm worshiping the God I built in my own imagination. And in 2008, I was invited to English courses organized by American Baptists. And I went there and at the end, they asked me whether you would love to know more about Bible and Christian faith and Jesus. And I ticked all the boxes as yes, yes, yes none of people ever contacted me, even though I was so willing to hear about Jesus. Oh, and but in God's providence, I was invited to, to the church that was in, in, involved with organizing these courses. And there, for the first time in my life, I had clear uh, Bible presentation. Preacher opened the scripture, read the passage, and explained in simple terms and words who Jesus is, why he came to this earth, and what does it mean to be his disciple and follower of him? For me, there was, I would say, close to experience that Luther described in his own life, in his own life when he found out that God is not just judge, that is his willing to condemn him and who's the one who's stealing the joy from you. But God is a, a savior who wants to redeem you from this meaningless and hopelessness of this life to take your burden and sins and give you his beautiful new uh, identity. And there was, I, I still remember, there was like uh, eye, soul, mind opening experience in my life. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't say that was the only moment when I turned my no, okay, no. but there was one of the moments when I understood what Christian faith is all about. Yeah. And I became a Christian. Yeah. One thing I realized later is that, you know, sportsmen and runners, they're full of themselves. You, you basically want to beat everyone and prove yourself to the world and say, look at me and admire me. And not probably, it wouldn't be, it would be unfair if I say I'm not that person. I, I was that person. I was saying like, winning everyone, like, look how glorious I am. But when I became a Christian, I realized there is someone who's much more beautiful than I am. And people will never find any answers of life in me, but they will find answers in the person of Jesus. And so I, realize I want to commit my life not to mm. making people serve me and admire me but mm. hoping helping people to see who Jesus is mm. thank you very much yeah and that's been clear in in everything you've said um really good Taris I think we'll we'll um we'll, we'll call it there on the on the interview but it's been great to hear all of your story and the way in which the different bits of your story just connect in all kinds of different ways. It's been a joy to talk to you and I hope everyone who's uh, been, been listening in has got something out of it. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, brother.